a Kia SUV is capable of taking you far. But when you use it locally to help your community, you go even further. Whether that's carrying cargo, bringing your team with you, ready, or navigating new terrain. Power up your capability with the right Kia SUV. Do more with the Kia Sportage, Kia Telluride, Kia Sorento, or Kia Seltos. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. This is the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman. Brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is insuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. All right, it's Midwife Mail Podcast time. Greg Scheinman here. Thank you so much for joining me on the program as always. It's a pleasure, a privilege, and I'm grateful to bring you the stories of entrepreneurs, risk takers, high achievers each and every week on the Midwife Mail Podcast. If you like what you hear, continue to give us those five-star reviews. Put up those nice comments. Tell your friends. If you've got ideas for other guys who should be on the show, reach out to me directly at gregscheinman.com. I'm appreciative. I'm grateful. This is a blast that I get to do this, and I really am thankful to everybody out there who is supporting the program. This week, Brian Becker, Chairman and CEO of Base Entertainment and Base Hologram. Brian is an entertainment industry vet with more than 35 years of experience building and managing worldwide live entertainment businesses. Currently, Bass's productions include Absinthe at Caesars Palace Plaza, Matt Franco Magic Reinvented Nightly at The Link Las Vegas, and Magic Mike Live at Hard Rock Resort. They have current exhibitions including Battle for Texas, The Experience at River Center San Antonio, and base programs the Planet Hollywood Showroom in Las Vegas and two theaters in Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. They have been involved in productions such as Phantom of the Opera, the Las Vegas Spectacular Venetian, Peep Show starring Holly Madison at Planet Hollywood, Rock of Ages at Venetian, Jersey Boys at Palazzo, Million Dollar Quartet at Harris, the list goes on and on. From 2000 to 2005, Brian also served as the chairman and CEO of Clear Channel Entertainment, the world's leading producer and promoter of live entertainment events, as well as the world's largest owner and operator of event venues, managing acquisitions and operations in the music, theater, motorsports, exhibitions, and sports agency business. He was named one of the most 100 most powerful people in entertainment by Entertainment Weekly for four consecutive years. And prior to SFX Entertainment sale to Clear Channel Communications, he served as the Executive Vice President and Director of SFX Entertainment. He also was part of his family-owned and operated Pace Entertainment Corporation, which at the time was the largest diversified live entertainment company in the world. Aside from all that, he's an all-around good guy. We've known each other for a while. It was really cool that he invited me over to the base offices here in Houston so we could sit down and talk. We hit start on the record and just went for it. So without further ado, here is Brian Becker on the Midlife Mail podcast. I always thought I was 10 years behind the curve. I always thought I was like, if I were 52 now, I think I'd be right where I want to be. You know, and and that's an interesting point. I think about kind of how and where people develop also, you know, where they, yeah. where they hit their stride. I think there's a big, you know, kind of a big push, maybe almost too much pressure to grow too fast, you know, and to know exactly what you're going to do too early, you know, and get out there. But just... I think that's an interesting point. I think, you know, uh, you know, in, in my age group and my friends, there are two, there are two sets of us. There are those that got married young and had kids young and then by the time they were in their 50s, say, their kids were gone. And then there are groups that are, then the other group which I'm in, which is, you know, waiting and having kids when you're, you know, when you're in your 30s and your kids aren't gone until you're, you know, late, late 50s or 60s or whatever. And uh, on the one hand, you know, you're struggling to build a career while you're raising kids. On the other hand, you've got to, you make, theoretically, you have your career, you have some level of, you know, wealth or whatever, or some financial stability, I should say. And... Uh, and but you know, but they stick but they're around longer, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, that's what I found. 
well, it's all part of it. Sustainability, longevity, and we'll get that. Look, if we're living longer, we're staying healthy longer. Yeah. yeah. Um, we get to in, we get to enjoy more you know, later on. It's, I guess yeah. there's always been that debate of should I do it now? You know, when I'm young and I can enjoy it and do this, or do I save more and do I wait? You, you know, know like big, all these constant the constant the, dichotomy uh, stuff. The and biggest I don't miss it all when we get going. You know, in there the too. Big, the biggest frustration I have is, uh, or that I would say that I've identified, is the acceptance and the realization and acceptance that you do have to make choices. You cannot have it all. You know, we grow up, we think we can have it all. We can't. You know, so for example, for myself, um, I've traveled extensively for work. Um, I've traveled all over the world and done some really interesting things and met some really interesting people. And, and uh, that's all been incredibly satisfying. What I've missed is I don't have, I don't play golf. I don't have, you know, a monthly or a weekly golf game with great buddies that I've been meeting with for the last 30, you know, mm -hmm. years or whatever. I don't have lunches on a regular basis with just, you know, friends hanging out or that, that, that poker game or whatever. Um, I traveled really, really hard from the perspective of getting out and getting back as quickly as possible because I had kids at home. And so from a health perspective, and I didn't get to see... I didn't spend as much time with my kids uh, as uh, I would have liked um, or, or as the alternative would have provided. But, you know, every situation has its positives and its negatives. And, and like I said, you just, you just don't get it all. Some people get it all. You know, the guy that invented something at 22 and he's a, he <laughs> retires at 25 and, or she retires at 25, whatever, great. But, you know, but the rest of us mm -hmm. have to make choices. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is that you have to get to a point where you say, okay, um, I'm never going to reach this pinnacle, but I'm, I've gone far enough. If I want to mortgage the rest of my life and, or the next 10 years, and maybe I can reach that next pinnacle, say it's a pinnacle having to do with you know, income or mm -hmm. prestige or whatever, but i got to sacrifice another 10 years of not doing blah, blah, blah. So you, I, think that, I think it's really, really important for people to get to a point where they go, okay, you know, I'm... In my case, I'm 62. This is what I've done. This is what I cap how I'm capable of living. And you know, do I really want to spend another three or four years working my ass off for five more years or whatever? Mm -hmm. You know, that that's and and but I'm but you know what? I'm never going to be, you know, I'm never going to be Jeff Bezos, mm -hmm. you know, or or you know whatever. So and I guess again, look, it depends if you want that. And if you want mm -hmm. that, and 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 if even if you wanted it, is it something that you still want to pursue? Because the alternative. Sucks, you right. know. Mm -hmm. Well, coming in second to Jeff Bezos might not be bad. Right. You know, well, there's yeah. always, you know, the there's always a measuring stick, I guess, and it depends on on what you what's important. And we'll talk about. You're the one that said life. you should measure against yourself. You measure against your past, not against your other people, right? Didn't you say that in your one of your blogs? Yes, I, I know you said because yeah. I remember reading it. And yeah. I think. I think we're all different. I think yeah. what motivates us and what drives us and what pushes us is all is all different. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. on one end, my grandmother would say, you know, coffins don't have pockets. You know, you can't. On the other yeah. hand, um, you know, my dad was forty-seven when he passed away. You know, oh, I, had no I idea. was a teenager. My brothers were you know eight years old, eight and you know ten, wow. ten years old. Wow. So you think about your perspective on yeah. living, you know, and certain yeah. things. You think yeah. about planning. You think about finances and how much is enough. You know, um, stuff. You and can also buy. the fact that you could walk off a curb tomorrow and get hit by a truck. Absolutely. Look, yeah. there are things you can buy and there are things that you can't buy. Yeah. And yeah. then you yeah. can't put you can't put a price on. Yeah. So I think everyone yeah. has a different perspective, and and. I'll even see it in, in our firm too. You know, there are eight of us that are partners in our firm. Yeah. We've worked with a ton of different people at different levels. Yeah. We have a few, quite frankly, that drive the ship. I'm pretty sure they sleep in a suit, wake up in a yeah. suit, yeah. grind it out, yeah. you know, and yeah. do certain things. And we have a couple of others that are very, very solid producers, but they don't want to have anything to do I with, think, with, with certain things. And I will tell you, what, what are you, in your 40s? How old are you? Just turned 46. Okay. So I will tell you that one thing that I am really thankful for is I do think that as you get old, you do, uh, I don't know why, because I mean, I, I was just, I was the most aggressive, hungry guy in the world, but I do think over the last two years, I have really, I've tempered, mm -hmm. you know, and I, and I find that I don't care about, well, I never cared about being on the stage or being interviewed or whatever. This is very unusual for me. I would only do interviews if I had to, you know, to advance our business interests. Um, but um, 
you know, I find myself saying, I don't need to go to that show. I don't need to be at that opening. I don't need to, uh, you know, I don't, I'd rather hang out with my wife and go to dinner mm-hmm. or do a weekend at the beach, what, you know, whatever the case it is. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was, I have to be there. I have, you know, I, I got to shake those hands. I got to mm-hmm. do this. I got to do that. And I think that's a really good thing that happens. I do. And I think, again, maybe everybody gets there at their own time or if they get there. Maybe yeah. some never get there. And again, that causes divisiveness in relationships and other things. And, you know, when is, again, yeah. enough, enough, enough. Um, you know, I had a, a good friend of mine on the program not too long ago who's a big sports agent. Yeah. Also. Um, based out of Chicago, triplets, you know, married to our, his college, college sweetheart. We were all in college together. But to build that career up also, again, traveling all the time. Yeah. Traveling at every game, at every spring training, mm-hmm. at every practice, and signing guys and doing And always on your phone. Constantly. Because you con- got it because you're serving your, uh, your yeah, yeah. Always. And as the career reach, reaches a certain level, and, whether, and, and you age maybe a little bit, and you become more mature, and your relationships even with your clients change, and expectations change, you know, how many World Series do I need to go to? You know, how, right. many Series, how many you know, trips do I need to take? You know, at a certain point, you transcend that. And, and the conversation was, was really interesting. As, as a professional, you get to a level of professionalism in your career also where he's, I just do a good job. I think you all, but I think there's, I think there's also other elements. I think it is, if you are a contemplative person, and if you're not, then either you're blissfully and happily ignorant, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, there may be something for that, you know, or, uh, or you're really doing yourself a disservice. But, you know, if you don't stop and, like, for example, I had a conversation with someone recently, and I said, okay, um, if you have an interest in spending two weeks in Italy and studying, you know, architecture or history or whatever, or, or going to Greece or going here or going there or... You know, taking class, you know, if you're interested, if those things are intellectually stimulating, mm-hmm. you know, at some point in time, you're going to no longer be physically able to do that if you mm-hmm. can do whatever. And so, you know, what happens if, if I quit today? You know, what does that mean? Well, it means that there's an impact on my income that you can that you can figure out. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a mathematical calculation. But, you know, you also say, well, I'm no longer going to be the most important guy in the room. I'm no longer going to be the CEO. I'm no longer going to be the manager of the act or the or this or that and the other. And my ego is no longer going to be fed by those things. But if, on the other hand, I don't, I would rather, you know, spend my time, you know, expanding my horizons and, and, you know, being intellectually curious or whatever. And that's you gotta. And if you don't think about that, you wake up one day. That's what was my biggest fear is that I'm going to wake up one that I would, but I'm, but I'm not. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I've overcome it. But. Then I'll wake up one day and go, yeah, where all the time go when I did none of the stuff I wanted to do? Right. You know? And I th- look, that's, that's deep stuff because you're talking about also kind of relevance, legacy, personal and professional, and juggle that. And I remember even, we, maybe we talked about this and eight, ages ago, I mean, my first job out of college was at Miramax Films on the desk of Harvey Weinstein, you know, running Harvey's <laughs> office. There, I mean, talk about a bad, talk about a bad mentor. Okay, I mean seriously. So do you have some stories? Oh, heck yeah! Okay. Even back then, right? Well, way back, way back then, and it goes back 20, 25 years. But you were associated as the gatekeepers. We yeah. were associated with with him and with that company. And it was heady right. stuff, right? And there was heady the stuff for twenty-something-year-old guy. Yeah, right? it, was, it was super stuff. Twenty-one-year-old guy. Yeah. And then subsequently later. Um, you know, I had some deal. You know, we did, had some dealings with Michael Eisner after he left Disney. He said, yeah. "Okay, you're no longer the chairman of Disney. You're now, you're still Michael. We're, we're doing this deal, but we're in a different office. We don't yeah. have a thousand Imagineers to create things for us. And you're trying to run smaller mm-hmm. companies and stay relevant in certain certain yeah. areas. And that was unbelievably interesting. For and me the question too. is, how did I, how was Eisner? Did I, did Eisner seem to be Upset about the fact that he was no longer chairman of Disney, or was he okay with having two billion dollars and having a bunch of interest? You know, that's really interesting, and I don't know if I could truly tell you exactly how he felt. But I always found him to be an amazing human being. I found him to be a great family man. He had three boys. I came from a family of 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 two other brothers. My my question is: Was he was he okay with not being the chairman of Disney? You know, I mean, do you you know people that walk away, people that retire from acting, for example, I Mm -hmm. think is amazing. You know, because I'm talking about being in the spotlight. 
or two people say I'm stepping down from being the chairman and CEO of this company. Uh, Ken Chenault just stepped down right. from Am- Amex, right? And you're going, God, you know, no one said please leave. You know, it was mm-hmm. like I, it's time. I mean, you got to have real a real strong compass of what you want. I remember though. Uh, years ago, I was doing business with Sony Music, and Walter Yetnikoff was uh, terminated. And this was like in the 80s, right? And they gave him a $50 million severance, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but I think it was that. And so $50 million in the early 80s would be two, $300 million today, the equivalent, something like that with inflation, right? So I was speaking to someone at the time, and I said, well, you know, God, the guy's got $50 million in the bank, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the person I was speaking to said, yeah, but let me explain something to you. He was the king of the kingdom. He never picked up his luggage. He never drove a car. He flew private. He had the best, uh, you know, um, suites in the best hotels anywhere in the world. He got the best, you know, he was the king of the yeah. kingdom. Now he's an incredibly wealthy guy. No one has to have a, you know, has to have a charity event for him to put food on the table. But he's no longer king, you know. Right. And, uh, you know. I think, it's, I think it's very interesting. I think it's about identity. Also, and, and what, what you want. I think in Michael's case, I found him to be gracious, secure, and excited. And you said very at the very beginning of this that content is king. You know, even yeah. when we were just talking about podcasting yeah. in yeah. general, that you can produce content and content is king. He used to say that all the time. It was all about you know, creating content. And here's an opportunity now on his own to create content, which I think he's still doing and still doing you know, very well. But even I struggled with my own identity when you're living through somebody else, you know, whether mm-hmm. you were Harvey's guy at Miramax, good, right. bad, or indifferent, or right. you were Michael's guy, you know, and then got out of that and then deal. You're not. Like, like, and then you're not. And you're like, okay, you're the puppy dog who's no longer getting pet anymore. And no one's and, calling you yep. anymore because they want to get to someone. Exa- exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you struggle with the identity, and yeah. I think it took even me a while to get past some of those things. Okay. What do I want to do? Who do I want to do it for? You know, is it my own identity or through somebody else's? Um, yeah. And how do those individuals drive you too? I mean, yeah. Those guys. And you know, it's, it's like, you know, and by the way, Eisner was, I think Eisner was fired or pushed out. Uh, Harvey, we know what happened to him. Um, Yetnikoff was fired. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, and, I, and I, listen, I was fired from Clear Channel Entertainment and, uh, I mean, it was I was I was probably fired in the nicest way you possibly could be, and the circumstances I tell you later or whatever. But um, uh, what I'm saying is, you know, I've built companies, I've made money, I've lost money, I've sold companies, I've bought companies, I've run big companies, I've been hired and been told I was the greatest thing in the world. I've been fired and told, you know, <laughs> don't let the door hit you. Not quite that, but anyway. Um, and uh, and I look back on it, and I think to myself. You know what would I change about those things? You know, and 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 uh, and I probably wouldn't. Ch- I mean, I maybe there's some things I would change, certainly. But um, uh, but sometimes you have reality thrust upon you, and it's the best thing that could ever happen to you. And you hear this from all the time. All the p- different people say this all the time. Different things, but you know, and you fa- and you go, okay. What so when I when I left Clear Channel, um, and uh, there was a the, uh, the situation when I left Clear Channel, and they took really good care of me and. And sold me some assets and paid me a lot of money. Did all this great stuff. Couldn't have been happier, other than the circumstance. And it gave me an opportunity to create a new company, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a whole new experience, right? And uh, and I realized I wasn't really happy being as part of a, a publicly traded company, um, but it was such a cool gig. I mean, it was the, I was the head of the largest live entertainment company in the world. In fact, there's no company that's ever compared to it in terms of diversity because then Live Nation it was spun out and they. And mm-hmm. all these companies were sold, and so now they're all these really, really big companies that are, but they're separate, you know, for me. Yep. And, uh, and I remember thinking to myself, I mean, I remember having these conversations with myself before any of that happened, saying, I really don't like what I'm doing, um, but I, I, I don't like what I'm doing, but I love what I'm doing, you know. And uh, do I, will I ever have the balls to uh, walk away from it? I remember having that conversation with myself many mm-hmm. times. And were so the fact that someone made it happen was helpful to me. Were you able to have that conversation with anybody else? Did you have that inner circle, whether it was family, whether it was other kings, if you will, out there? Yeah, you know, I have some. I had some good buddies at uh, in YPO. Uh, that's an organization here in town that was great, or a worldwide organization that was great. And I had my father, and I had my brother. You know, and my sister to some extent. She wasn't quite, you know. Uh, 
you know, as as uh, as as uh, informed about this kind of stuff. So yeah, I did, I did. Unfortunately, not my wife, but you know, the <laughs> others were great. <laughs> but yeah. you make a good point about that too. You know, on one side, it's the it's the professional, and you're dealing with your role, boards pushed out, staying on, having this. And on the yeah. other side, there's the personal toll, you know, that it that it takes too. You know, you're running two businesses, if you will. There's the, the professional one and and the personal one. We've seen yeah. careers take off and be at the highest level and the king of kings, you know, where the personal is falling apart, you know, on there too. And then others where it's the opposite. Personally things are going great, but you know, I can't get shit so, going, you know, so professionally. I, I used to have a, uh, there was this guy I used to go speak to. He was a, a, a doctor of psychology, and uh, he was great. And I'm a big fan of talking to someone who actually you can talk to uh, and who can give you references in terms of studies and this and that. And you can say, mm-hmm. you're not crazy or, you know, you really are crazy or whatever. <laughs> you know, and this guy was great. He died a number of years ago. His name was Walter Cumberly. He was incredibly impactful for me. Um, but he told me that there was a Harvard study, I think it was a Harvard study, years ago that measured, you know, 100 or plus successful men. It was uh, on men. Um, and uh, successful is defined as either being successful at home or successful in business. And what they found is that whereas over the course of several years they may be characterized as successful, they were never successful or equally successful at both at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that life for them was a pendulum. It would go one way and they'd be working their asses off and they really would be not doing everything they would want to do or could do or should do for their family. And then the pendulum would shift the other way and they'd be able to really do all those good things and maybe they're, they weren't you know, performing at the level that they... Yeah. And I thought it was a really interesting thing. And so the, you know, the idea is, well, okay, if that's the case, if that's sort of reality, which it isn't for everybody, but maybe it is for some, um, then, you know... Having some, then instead of having boundaries like this, and, you know, where you're, you're, you know, where you're just, you know, parallel boundaries. Maybe those boundaries are more like a cone, and you just make sure that the pendulum never swings out, you know, goes outside the cone. Mm-hmm. Because if it goes far to one side, maybe you still got enough going on here where things aren't going to fall apart. And then when it swings the other side, so instead of like this, it's like this, and you have to have the right partner in life, etc. But I thought that, that that was so helpful to me, you know, because mm-hmm. I thought, who are these bastards out there that are doing it all perfectly, you know? I think, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think there is a perception that again, some have it all, or they can do it all, or or balance it all. And I don't believe that. You know, we should create the cone the theory, and we should publish that. that, that we we should with with the C O N E, or we can do the C O H E version and monopolize the whole the yeah, whole exactly. thing. Mm-hmm. So we we jumped right into uh, to a slew of stuff, which which was awesome. But I want to backtrack a little bit. Um, Kind of back back to the beginning, okay. um, and how you got your start. Did you always know you wanted to be in, in entertainment? Was it because the family was in it? Um, did you have to get pulled into it? I mean, what was your well? It's interesting. Uh, my my first of all, uh, my father, uh, who is my hero and my brother's hero, and uh, my sister. I made my sister. My sister adores him, whether hero or not. You know, I don't know how it works that way, but. Um, and so, you know, anything my father did, we just thought was great. And, you know, he's, he's an incredible person. So um, when I was younger, like in elementary school, not elementary school, but like junior high school and high school, I thought definitely want to go into entertainment. Then I got into college and I saw there was a whole big world out there and a lot of other interesting stuff. And I worked overseas and I worked back and I went to business school and I thought, well, you know, maybe I'd like to go into banking. In fact, I still, I still wonder if I would have enjoyed investment banking or real estate development more than what I do now. I mean, you never know. You have to make choices, right? You can't mm-hmm. do it all. Some people can't, but, you know, we should shoot those bastards. Um, uh, so when I graduated from business school, I was interviewing for banking, some banking positions. And uh, my father uh, called me and said, I think we want to develop a theater business. Um, and if you, and if we think you could be really great in helping us. Why don't you consider coming back? And so I agreed to do that. And, uh, I mean, it's been an incredibly great ride. Um, and like I said, you know, there are choices that we have to make. There's some things I wish, wish I had done that I didn't do. But um, so I came in, and, I, and so I started working. We had, and it was like, it was, for me, it was like the Camelot of my business career. I mean, my partners were my family, of course, uh, Louis Messina, who's now the number mm-hmm. one tour promoter in the United States, maybe in the world, um, Miles Wilkin, who... 
is now sort of like the uh, retired chairman of Broadway Across America, but again, one of the great, you know, Tony Award winner for Lifetime Achievement, and you know, I mean, just an incredible Scott Zeiger, same kind of thing. Uh, C.E. Altman, uh, Rodney Eckman, these are all guys, and we, and we, it was just like this golden age where we, you know, it was, and, you know, and we liked each other very much, and we fought all the time, but if anyone wanted to, you know, take us on, you know, it became like a brick wall, you know, you know, whatever. And we built this company that became the largest live entertainment company in the world. Uh, uh, and based out of Houston, Texas, which I always thought was the greatest joke in the world. Because here in Houston, you know, in terms of if you look at the social scale, it's oil and gas, oil and gas, oil and gas, you know, whatever, the first yeah. 10 or 20. <laughs> and then maybe it's real estate and banking and whatever, medical. You know, we don't even crack the top 30, you know. So we were the biggest in the world that no one gave a shit. Couldn't get a reservation at a restaurant <laughs> if I had to. So anyway, I started that, and I found that I was really good at business development. And fundamentally, um, we all have something that we're good at and or we're better at than other things that we do. And in this case, uh, for me, it was strategic planning and business development. I could sort of connect the dots and then find ways to get there. So we started this theatrical company, which I was with for a couple of years, and then Miles and Scott continued to run it, and we built into the largest subscription network, and we're the biggest producers of theater in the world for years through the various companies we had, you know, in terms of including when we sold the companies, and we were... We provide the leadership for those companies. Uh, I had this idea that amphitheaters made some sense, and so we started developing amphitheaters. And so we built Cynthia Woods Mitchell, and we had one in Dallas, and and you know we kind of figured out a way to do it, mostly smoke and mirrors because we didn't have the capital. We made deals with MCA and Sony and Blockbuster and consolidated this industry, and it's still this amphitheater network that we create is still a huge part of Live Nation. Uh, I the reason I know this is I, I, we were t- I was lamenting the other day that you know. I felt like I was Russia, you know, I had a good sort of, you know, or the USSR, I had like a good sort of 70 years and then, you know, whatever. <laughs> and they said, no, no, it's really incredibly lucrative, incredibly important part of their business. And so that's kind of a nice thing. And the, and the Broadway market is the basis of that. The Broadway business is the same mm-hmm. thing. And then we had the motorsports business. And I kind of ascended because of my background. I was always more the business side. And so I became CEO of the company. But it was truly and undoubtedly a partnership between my brother and my father and our partners and me. And it was like, you know, it was, it was, it was a, a great time. And so that's how I got into it and, uh, and sort of brought a business perspective to promoting, if you will. How do you view the business side where you come from and, and the creative side? You know, the idea of taking something either off the page or their proposal, whether it's yeah. theater, whether it's motorsports, whether it's, concert and say okay you know this is pretty subjective stuff it's me and then do we want to get involved with this do i like this how much taste is it or your opinion or somebody's opinion versus let's run the numbers behind behind it well it's a combination of all those i mean our job my job and what i what i do is i our job is to support talent our our job is to support people who are who are magically courageously able to create stuff that we all relate to and that moves us and that we love and enjoy and entertain. So um, now selecting which one of those folks to support and how to do it, that's, that's, where, that's where we have to be artful. Um, and uh, you, can do that, you can do that a number of different ways. I mean, Broadway, there's a, there's a way to play the game in Broadway with the way we did anyway, because for us, doing Broadway shows, investing in Broadway shows was basically a rights acquisition. So we knew that we wanted to always have great shows coming through our network. So we would invest in, in New York, and of course we hoped to make money, and of course we hoped to get our money back or not lose all of our money. But at the end of the day, it wasn't, that wasn't as important to us as having the rights that we got by making that investment once it went on the road. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the amphitheater business, the structure that we used was to create a venue that we could afford to build and operate and that allowed us to capture all these revenue streams that we did not have access to before. Because if I was doing a show or if we were doing a show at, say, The Summit, um, we, would, uh, we would get the ticket sales and sponsorships or whatever, and The Summit would get the parking and the food and beverage and the rent and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. They were two separate revenue streams. And if we couldn't make money, we wouldn't do a show, in which case The Summit was empty. And if we or or that the sum would make money and we lose a bunch of money, and so separating those two revenue sets of revenue streams, but by combining them, which we did with the amphitheaters, and because we could afford to build a twelve or fifteen million dollar venue, we couldn't afford to build a two hundred million dollar venue, right? And we could operate them. 
so the structure that we created was bring all these revenue streams to the table. And now if we lose money at the door, we still make, make, we'll still make money because we have all these other revenue streams. And so we'll be open instead of dark. And so that was how we approached that one. Uh, the motorsports business uh, was just, <laughs> it was just pure, you know, here's a great concept we think is going to resonate. And let's just muscle our way in it and take a shot. If it works, it works. And it, it worked. So what, on the business side, what you try to do, is, what I try to do in live entertainment anyway, is, is figure out ways that give you the best chance of success. Although at the end of the day, you're still betting on a concept and still betting on the people who are, are creating that concept. And sometimes it works and, and you know, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Just like anything else, by the way. You know? <laughs> what are you doing now? Mm-hmm. We're here sitting in your office, you know, we're drinking coffee three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. The day, what yeah. time does the day start? What are you doing right now? Are you yeah, focusing so, uh, on existing things, looking at So in this office uh, is my, uh, my, my father, my brothers, uh, a cousin, and, you know, we all, you know, we all sometimes do some things together. Sometimes we do things separately, but we all, you know, collaborate here. On the entertainment side, uh, what I'm doing is focusing on two different areas of business now, which are kind of interesting to me. One is we are the uh, we are the we are the second largest producer of of, of uh, shows in Las Vegas. Uh, Cirque du Soleil is number one, but if you talk about production shows, so we don't do concerts, we don't do Gaga or you know mm-hmm. uh, Lionel Richie or whatever, but um, but we produce shows. So we have four shows there now. We expect to have a fifth one here in the next couple of months. We'll have two more next year. So we we have a lot of stuff there. And what we're starting to do is to take these concepts and take them around the country again. So that going back to the you know the touring area of business, and the second thing we're doing is we're developing holographic and mixed reality based live entertainment. So we're combining actors and and musicians and singers and dancers and all the stagecraft you can imagine, but with holographic images of people like Roy mm-hmm. Orbison or. Maria Callas, and we have a bunch of others that we're developing. And we're also developing those things for things like museums, like a dinosaur exhibit with, where the dinosaurs are really right there. We want to scare every child in America, right? <laughs> you know, these dinosaurs. Um, and it's a really interesting business for us because it allows us to sort of have one foot in cinema and one foot in live entertainment. Holograms, the way we do it, are cinematic techniques. So I could... And it's really amazing because you have, you know, these live people on stage, you have a music conductor or a band leader, you have the actual master recordings of the artist's voice, you have the holographic image, which we create by hiring an actor or an actress and rehearsing them and using CGI and all that kind of stuff. But then on top of all that, if that is, it wasn't enough, we could literally create special effects like you see on a film right mm-hmm. there on stage. So it seems like, you know, it could be like all these live musicians and actors and actresses are in the middle of a you know, a poppy field or whatever the case would be. I'm thinking uh, Wizard of Oz. So, um, so that's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this stuff, I mean, obviously... Now, my brother, you know, was the, was the driving force behind the creation and development and programming and management of Smart Financial Center. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've all kind of kept our hands So, I, I want to ask you a little bit about that, about, about Smart, okay? Because out of nowhere, okay, comes a new arena here, yeah. okay, in Smart. And... I'm talk about the size, the booking, like it just like okay, get this piece of property, okay, that had nothing on it, all of a sudden you identify, put smart in there, and yeah. this thing is booked really, really well. Really I mean well. And the then acts also, that were coming, also supported by the market really well. Yes, and the acts that came in there, it was almost like obvious, like we've had other places to go see or other stuff, but here come better acts in a better spot, yeah. you know? Yeah. Is it <coughs> Again, it's been done before. Is it you guys are just better at from idea to well, exec, to execution? And take me through that process. Well, in terms of your last question, I would say that given what we've done as a family and as and with all of our partners, you know, starting you know thirty, forty years ago, whatever the case is, um, we have been fortunate enough to be good at what we do. Maybe better than many. Uh, we've not been restricted by the way, I mean, yeah, we, we haven't been restricted by, by, by the rules because we just, we really didn't know what we were doing. So, you know, we, we never, we never got, we never were limited by convention. Regarding smart financial centers specifically, I think there, there are two key things to keep in mind. One is that the city of Sugarland 
was incredibly confident and visionary and correct that this kind of a, of a, of a, of a structure and a business would work there, would be successful, not just beneficial to their community, but that it would be a real game changer here. You got to give those, you know, the leaders of that city and that city credit. It's a, and it's an incredible. By the way, it really is an incredible city. I, I spent a lot of time out there. It's incredible. The second thing you have to keep in mind is Gary Becker, uh, my brother. Um, he believed in it from the very beginning. He went out. He you know was able to, and there were other. I mean, he didn't do it by himself, but to, but he led it, and he was you know he mm-hmm. was to a large. He was the guy. I mean, there's no question. And, and by the way, the last couple of years, he really did do it, you know, with his team, the team that he, whatever. But, um, you know, I, I just, he was extraordinary. I mean, he went out there, he helped get the deal, he helped the city, he helped them design it properly, he, you know, helped them build it properly. There's always things you have to worry about, whatever. He helped them put the management together, launch the marketing and all the special programs, and then programmed it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I think that those two things together are what made it work. Um, and I think a lot of us in Houston... Um, and a lot of people like this, you know, when you're in the when you're in the big city, you you don't recognize necessarily where the the population is, the wealth, or the diversity of people, and, mm-hmm. you know, and that kind of stuff. And you and you're surprised when 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 something like that's not in the city center works. Mm-hmm. But you know, those folks knew what they were doing, and my brother, you know, like I said, wrote, you know, did what he did, and that's what happened. Was the plan, or is it with anything you do? Is the plan not only getting in, but how you guys, how and if you get out? Was the plan to sell it? Or is, your, was the, is the plan or philosophy to we, uh, acquire and hold? Right, yeah. right. Um, with Smart Financial Center, uh, the plan was not to sell. We had five other, theater, uh, yeah, five other theaters as well. Um, and it was just one of those fortuitous things where uh, someone came along and said, we you know, we'd like to do this with you guys. And um, it also happened that it was a, a very, you know, it's one of the biggest operators in the world. They're very well financed. It was going to provide a great long-term value and protection for the stakeholders in the city as well as the other theaters. And so it's just sort of, you know, and so that was, it was not, a, there was no exit plan. It was, mm-hmm. it came about unexpectedly. Um, Base, uh, Pace, I should say, Pace Entertainment, um, we got to a point where we were making decisions on how to grow, or we looked at the political landscape, or the competitive landscape, I should say, and uh, uh, it just seemed the right thing to do at the time. I think that in retrospect, hindsight being twenty twenty, we would probably have not done what we did, we pro- or we probably would have sold one or two of the divisions rather than all three, mm-hmm. um, but, you know... You know, you can't, you can't look back, right? Uh, and who knows? Um, and, but it's really interesting. I mean, the Feld organization has the motorsports company. They've done an incredible job. Broadway Across America added uh, Broadway.com to their uh, portfolio. They've done an incredible job. And then Live Nation, you know, Ticketmaster, Merger, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we take pride in the things that we built that really were the foundations of all those companies without taking credit for their success over the last several years because they've been you know, run by great people, but, but we were the genesis of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and so it was sort of the right time at the right place, right time to do something. Um, in terms of this company now, in terms of base, uh, I have outside shareholders. And so I think some kind of a monetization um, event is, is, uh, is expected. Uh, but whether it's a sale or going public or recapitalization or just, you know, cash flow, you know, it could be any of those things. Mm-hmm. Out of all the events and genres that you've produced or been a part of, music, theater, mm-hmm. motorsports, all the stuff that we've talked about, do you, have a, do you have a favorite? Like, is it a concert? Is it a Broadway show? Is it putting uh, the show on the road? You know what? Well, I'll tell you that my, my, uh, what, I, what I like most, and which is, which is what I'm doing now, interestingly enough, what I like most is the theater business uh, in terms of the collaborative nature of theater. So, and by the way, I love music and the music business, and the mo- and I'm a treadhead when it comes to motorsports and motorcycle racing, et cetera. But in terms of just, you know, what I enjoy the most is that in the theater business and in what we're doing now, you bring a number of different people who all have their own perspective and their creative approach together, and you collaborate on creating something. 
And to me, that's really enjoyable. So, and by the way, again, don't forget, I'm not the creative guy. I, get to, mm-hmm. I sit on sort of the periphery and, you know, and, and provide whatever support and financials and whatever. But, you know, in music, um, you know, in music, even if you're, say, a world, even if you're producing a tour around the world, you know, you may be inputting certain things like, here's what the economics are, here's what the logistics are, whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, the manager and the artists are, are doing what they want to do. And, and motorsports is a whole different genre. But in the theater business, everyone who's sitting at the table gets to participate. And you can write notes and you can and you and you select the director and you select the, you know, the choreographer and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And it's very collaborative. And the other thing I like about it is everyone's on the same agenda. I mean, if the thing is if the thing fails, then, you know, I mean the producer loses all the money, but also no one else has gotten rich. You're not paying every it's not like the film business where you pay someone twenty million dollars to be in the film. Mm-hmm. Um uh, on the other hand, you know, if it works and everyone, you know, makes money, you know, for as long as the, the thing goes on. And so I like people having, the, I like people having the same agendas, you know, but creatively, you know, I mean, you, it, you just, you know, it's just, you know, the human spirit and, you know, whether you're a writer or a musician or whatever, you know, the idea of creating something entertaining and meaningful and that touches your lives, I think is pretty, ma- is pretty amazing, mm-hmm. you know, so to be a part of that's pretty fun. The changes in the music business, and I, and I may fumble this a lot because I'm no expert here, but with the music business and digital downloads and getting everything, and, and it's changed so much that and I think you know, what they say is, is that touring is where the money is made you know, now because the album sales are not what, they, what yeah. they used to be, conceptually everything else, and it's on touring. Have you kind of sat back much ago? Oh, okay. This is this is swinging as you talk about the pendulum back in our favor as you know, as a company and an entrepreneur who's focused well, you know, on touring and all those sides for a while. Yeah. But but that's well, what I'm not really doing. in the concert business anymore. The concert touring business traditionally, but but I but I do keep up with it, and, and we are involved with the record company, the music companies, and that kind of stuff. No, here's here's the way it is. I think is that there's no doubt that. Artists are making more money on the road and by touring than they were than they were making out the record business right now. But the record companies are doing great. I mean, they're having record years. You know, I mean, uh, uh, um, Universal Music Group was just valued at thirty-three billion dollars. You know, more than Vivendi, which is interesting, which owns them. Uh, and the reason is because they they it took a it took a number of years, but they got their arms around the streaming services and the subscriptions and all that kind of stuff. The difference is when I was growing up, maybe even you, an album would come out and we would say, uh, we'd buy the album. It would sound mm-hmm. like the first track. We'd, you know, we'd sit around yep. and we'd you know, talk about you know, what the songs meant, what you like the second track, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And now it's very much I buy a song here, I buy a song there, et cetera. Right. And so that's what, the, you know, that's what the, the consumers do now. So it's, it's harder for artists to make all that income, but the record companies who have all this, have all this library and whatever, they figured out a way where they can do it. It's over a much broader group of people and, and or, or artists, et cetera. So um, I think it's I think it's um, I I think it's really interesting in that sense that you know the record business made a huge mistake 20, 30 years ago, forty years ago, whatever it was, because the record business. See, I, I'm, I'm aging myself. They're music companies <laughs> now. They were record companies back then, but you know they established the brand. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were the ones that controlled everything. They controlled the image. They the, you know all that kind of good stuff, and yet unlike the movie companies, they never they never said, oh, and by the way, we're going to control your touring, we're going to control your merchandise, you're mm-hmm. going to work for us, or we're going to have a business partnership, or whatever the case is going to be. Right. You know what I'm saying? And you know you have superstars now that, that you know, but but even like you know with Spider Man or the you know the the DC universe and all that kind of stuff, even though you have yes. these actors who are getting a lot of money, at the end of the day, if that thing's throwing off a billion dollars, a billion five, or whatever the case is. The studios are controlling the merchandise and the digital and the aftermarket right. and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, God bless the actors who are getting paid and the directors who are getting paid. But at the end of the day, the ownership of all that stuff, mm-hmm. whereas on the music business, the, the record companies, until the last, you know, 10 years or so, but the record companies, all, all they wanted was publishing and the uh, record sales. And that was it. And so it's kind of interesting now how big that business would have been otherwise had they, had they not performed in that way. Yeah, um, yeah. But so I think the record business is now back to where it needs to be. What's going to be really interesting, I think, moving forward, is how successful are we going to be at creating new acts and new talent? And what's interesting to me 
is that whereas back in the day it was up to the record and the record companies were much more active and put a lot more money behind it and they would support tours because back in the day of course you know even Springsteen you, I mean you name an artist Billy Joel whatever the case is mm -hmm. you know uh, Carol King whatever you know maybe not so much Carol King because he was also a songwriter but they would do a they would do a club tour then they may do a big club tour then they would mm -hmm. do a small theater tour and then you know after four or five tours and three or four records which doesn't get done anymore either they'd hit it big and they would have built this incredible relationship with a very very loyal fan base and now you can become a star with a single video or a single you know social media deal so the people so so the source of new creative stars is you know is podcasts and and videos and all that kind of stuff and it's just you know identifying and you know, look at Bieber and look at you know just amazing there mm -hmm. so that's sort of the shift. Now it's getting bigger, obviously, and, and it's easier to distribute content and all that. But at the same time, are you see, I feel like we're seeing a resurgence also in smaller, more personal, even type entertainment. Well, because you have, because you don't have, any, you know, you don't have any barriers to communication. I mean, uh, uh, you know, you can, you can, you can establish yourself and develop a crowd and and develop a following or whatever, and it's very, very that's. By the way, it's hard to get through the clutter, to be clear. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, and again, you're talking, you know, beyond my skill set on this, but I'm amazed at these YouTube, these YouTube uh, players. Like, I, some of them are performers, some of them, whatever. You're just YouTubers in general, I guess that's what my kids call it. These YouTubers yeah, with unbelievable these, followings. Yeah, they're millions making, and millions of followers. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, you're talking about how, okay, so this is, this is really great. We're doing this podcast, and... And you can do that. And you can communicate through social media and, and all that kind of good stuff. And the good news is you can reach a lot of people and you can slice and dice them. You said, you know, someone who wants to know about home building or this mm -hmm. or that. On the, other time, on the other hand, if you're an advertiser, you know, it was, you know, 50 years ago it was easy. There were three television networks. Right. There was only, you know, AM radio, whatever the case mm -hmm. it was. And, you, you know, and remember there's a famous saying that said, we know that 50% of our marketing is wasted. We just don't know which 50% it is, right? <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it was shotgun and you just saturated. Mm -hmm. And now you can't do that if you're an advertiser. You've got to be much more precise because you have so many different channels and so many different distribution uh, methods, et cetera. And so, um, and so b because of that, I think it's, it's interesting how, you know, um, people can, if they can break through as a YouTuber or whatever, they can command great uh, sums of money from advertisers because they're because they're uh, because they're influencers. Mm -hmm. So someone who has three million followers can get this. Someone who's got fifteen million followers can get that. And it's because advertisers know that I've got a direct conduit to this demographic or this. And it's you know it's it's so, amazing. And I think it's an interesting dichotomy. Yes, you can absolutely do that, and we see that. I mean, and that's how my kids. Yeah. really watch content now. I mean, just turning on the TV or anything is, is not the thing. Yeah, you know, the, right. their celebrities are who they're following and watching is all yeah. as what you're saying. It's all on YouTube and social media and so on and so forth. But here's where I said on, on the flip side, like I remember, I go back a few years, even in Houston, we didn't have many small theaters. And then all of a sudden it seems like we've got the Rustic and we've got White Oak and we've got the Heights yeah, Theater. Yeah. And it seems like there's a little bit more investment into some of these smaller, more personal I mean, and well, acts I that are, and good acts that are that are coming through. And I wonder if it's because you lose a lot of the personal connection through YouTube, social media, singles versus albums or whatever yeah. it may be. And people are looking for ways to hmm. be around their artists. Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting theory. Um, and it may very well be true. I, I uh, may not. <laughs> okay. No no but I was gonna say but you know for me um, what what is what is you know what's what's happened is that um, you can get the ticket price you need to do a four or six thousand seat show, and it's better for the fan and it's better for the artist um, than having to do a fifteen thousand seat arena. Mm -hmm. Not all shows, by the way. Right. I mean, some you know, and, and some people are playing stadiums. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's there's still a commercial nature to this. You know, but. I do think you're finding that there are, I think that we are finding, and also as the, and this applies, you know, and by the way, you know, even millennials want comfort and they, <laughs> you know, they're not willing to sit out on the grass the way we used to, whatever. And, um, and then of course, as the older, and you know, the older market is a big market now. I mean, you know, you know, and we don't want to go to an arena necessarily. Uh, so, 
you know, I'm willing to spend as a consumer 125. I mean, 125 dollars yep. for a concert ticket is you know, is you know, so high compared to what it you know what it used to be. But mm-hmm. but on the other hand, um, and I have a whole different take on that. But so now you can do shows for 4,000 seats and generate enough money to be able to get someone like a Bob Dylan or or he comes to mind, but whoever mm-hmm. it is, you know, great comedians or you know whoever. Um, and, uh, and I think also the other thing that has happened, I think, is the dynamic pricing and the way that ticketing has worked and the way that you got StubHub in the aftermarket. All of these things, I think, have gone into making it okay to spend, in the eyes of consumers, to spend more money for tickets. Now, again, you know, in the, if you look at the history of this, um, you had a couple things that went on. Number one is uh, concerts and music was a very personal thing for people. And they felt it was part of them, and they were entitled to certain things. That wasn't the right. That wasn't right necessarily from a uh, a pure, you know, uh, economic perspective. Uh, but they had this personal relationship. But I remember someone would say to me, "God, how can you charge this for a ticket?" And I'd say, "Well, you know, let's take Madonna. Madonna puts on a great show, a big show. She comes around once every three to five years, and the ticket price is the same as to go see the Houston Rockets play." And they play, what, 70 times a year or whatever. <laughs> right. And so, you know, why is once every three or four times this big show, this incredible experience, once, you know, whatever, why, you know, why is this okay at the Rockets when it's not okay here? It's because there was this personal relationship and sort of this historical cultural relationship mm-hmm. between consumers and music. And that was, that was further established by the fact that artists would go to great lengths to keep people from scalping. And I don't know if you remember back in the day, but people would... They would have people stand in line, and if you had a, they that was going, probably, that was my job okay. in in high school. Okay, you could only buy, <laughs> okay, so you could only buy four tickets. So the, the scalpers would go and they'd get they'd hire twenty people to stand in line, so they get eighty tickets. And then mm-hmm. you had all these bots, you know, where they could buy tickets online and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And it just further established the idea that it was wrong, scalping was wrong, charging more than the face value was wrong, um, and I mean under this cultural sure. perspective. Mm-hmm. And so there, and, and why? Because we know this. All the artists are doing this, and you know, not at all these laws or whatever. And now, over the last ten years, now that you have dynamic pricing and you have StubHub being mm-hmm. public, whatever the case is, and it's okay um, because of all that. I think higher ticket prices are now accepted as value for money. If it's not worth going, don't spend the money. But it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of is it worth it to you or not. And right. so, as a result of all that, you get the ticket prices necessary to play smaller, more intimate. Uh, venues and also smaller, more intimate venues give you greater value for money. You're closer to the artist. Well, I think that's that's my theory. <laughs> and I think it, I think your theory is spot on because it becomes about value. Again, if you can be up close right. and personal potentially right. in a smaller place and get a better experience yeah. and pay a certain number for that, great. Versus maybe I'm priced out of a better experience in a bigger arena because I could spend the same amount of money, but I don't want to be in the three hundreds, the four hundreds, or, or so yeah. far away. But if KISS is coming to the Smart Financial Center and I can pay a premium and I can see them in a smaller arena yeah. for potentially what may be their last, you go, okay, there's a lot of value yeah. You yeah. Know, for that. It's, it's just, yeah, mm-hmm. I, just say, I remember, you know, <laughs> I think about all this stuff. This is when I was in you know, high school or whatever. People, you could not buy Coors beer east of Dallas. Hmm. And so people from Houston would literally drive to Dallas and buy, you know, six or eight cases of Coors beer and drive back to Houston because it was considered such a, because it was, you know, you couldn't get it. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, you know, perception. It's always interesting to see what the DNA is of perception versus reality. Right. I do think that now with music, with the way streaming is done, and you don't have to buy the entire album if you don't want to, and with the intimate shows, whatever. Even though ticket prices are higher uh, at face value and all that kind of stuff, and the and dynamic pricing is the perfect economic model because mm-hmm. you know, buyer and seller match. Um, I think really the music business delivers a very accurate value for money now. Now, I, I agree with that. So, where do you want to go next? We started off on what might be enough is enough. You're yeah. 62 yeah. years old right now. And are you spending more time traveling? Are you spending... Like, how are you, yeah, bal- how that, are you uh, balancing now? Yeah, no, I'm doing all those things, you know, and I have a, my, my wife is extraordinary and she's smart and she's charming and she's adventurous and, you know, um, and she, uh, I, you know, I, I'm very motivated to hang out with her and the kids and all that kind of stuff uh, and friends, you know, people that I didn't get to see as much when I was traveling all the time now, I, I have better opportunity. 
Uh, my personal per perspective is that um, I'm hoping that in the next year or so, we, we have a very specific transition plan with leadership, and we have a very specific business plan that if we get to a certain point where we're, where we're stable and growing and whatever, that my role will be very much sort of defined as a chairman type role. And uh, you know, you know I, I've, I've seen too many people that quit working and then kind of shriveled up and died. Mm -hmm. That bothers me. Uh, I'm in an industry where, you know, if I don't have to worry about day to day, there are projects that are really interesting and fun. You know, producing a show on New York or pro mm -hmm. that's intellect, but doesn't require you know sixty hours a week or whatever. So I think that in, I think that in another year or two, if I see you at the gym where you're lifting all those heavy weights, <laughs> nope. which are, which by the way are a little bit deceptive because they're you know all those damn wide things. I remember talking. I said, okay. I said, how is he able to rate the value? He goes, Brian, they're not you know, you know those plates are the you know whatever. <laughs> so, so yeah, you're back to perception, okay? What you were talking about exactly. perception. The yeah. whole the whole thing goes back to perception. So the right. notion of these bumper plates, okay? Anybody out there? Yeah. These bumper plates that are rubber, the you know they're three times the size of, of the other plates. It's what do they say? You know the old thing. What's heavier, you know, a pound of bricks or a pound of feathers? Yeah. It's fucking a pound. That's what it is. It's a pound. It doesn't That's matter. Exactly and it's right. the same yeah. thing. But yeah. you see these these guys, you know. Perceptions, oh, they use they the drop, big ones, right? Boom, 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 right. you know, drops on the ground. They put the big plates on because everybody else looking around, yeah. <laughs> they, want to see, they want to be seen lifting the bigger plates, okay? But the reality is know. 25 pounds is 25 pounds. Whether no matter it's a small what, one that's there. Except, and, unless you're looking at uh, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, in which case the witch was <laughs> lighter than the feathers. Uh, anyway, I think if we see each other at the gym in, 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 uh, you know, in 2020, you know, I think that, you know, hopefully at that point in time, we'll have good people running the company and I'll be doing my thing and hanging out with my wife. There you go. Nice. So I won't, I, I won't keep you from that. I'm going to ask you one other topical question right yeah. now because we got the Super Bowl coming up on, on uh, Sunday. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Super Bowl halftime performance. Yeah. A lot of talk about Super Bowl halftime performance. Yeah. Yeah. Good, bad, what's going on with the NFL. If, like, what's your... Take should these guys have done it? Not do somebody's got to do it, right? But well, you know, um, <laughs> my my point of view is um, I have very specific points of view, like most people in politics and that kind of stuff. Um, and I have a point of view on on the on the kneeling and all that kind of stuff, uh, definitely. But I will say this: um, I think that uh, there are I think that there are I think that artists. Uh, are supposed to perform, and they're supposed to enlighten. And there's and and if and if you start restricting their ability to reach their audiences, do I? There's no doubt in my mind there will be some social message to what's done tomorrow. Uh, I mean, on yeah, tomorrow, Sunday. Sorry. There's no doubt in my mind there'll be social messages there. And uh, and Adam Levine has hinted at that in interviews recently. <laughs> um, so you know, it's the whole thing. It's it's like uh, what is it? AOC is that her name? What's her name? The uh, the representative from the East Coast. Um, um, they call her AOC. Whatever. <laughs> name is. Yeah. You know, and uh, and there's a really interesting conversation about her, which is, is she going to change things, or is she just going to make a lot of noise but not be able to change things? Because you really have to at least have one foot inside the system to make change. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing here. Um, I also think that this is a, a this is a dispute that actually has two very meritorious points of view. I don't think that it's clear. You know, if I'm a, if I'm a military, if I'm just by way of example, if I'm part of a military family, or if I've had, you know, uh, people that have fought and killed or been hurt or whatever, um, you know, I can see why I would say, look, I don't have a problem with your right to express your opinion, but don't insult the flag that my son or whatever died for. Mm -hmm. I can see that point of view. I can also see the other point of view that says, look, America is based upon freedom of speech and the ability to express our opinion, and, and social uh, protest is key to making us a better society. You know, those are two really defensible positions. We can have a debate and, and pick straws and decide what we're going to do. Um, so that's why I, my fallback is always, look, there are forums to entertain, there are forums for sports, there are forums for protest. Um, and, uh, and I think in this case, they made the right decision to perform. Gotcha. If I'm in Vegas, okay, and yeah. I got one thing to see, what do I go see? Absinthe. Absinthe. Okay. Favorite for you, favorite artist you've seen, or if you had a chance to put one guy up on stage? I have okay. to tell you, I, I, uh, I would have told you Tina Turner. 
uh, I like individual artists. In terms of this question, I like individual artists. You know, I think you know, I think the Rolling Stones are extraordinary. You can't beat them. But I'll tell you that the best concert I've I've ever seen, uh, I saw last week. It was Lady Gaga in Vegas performing her uh, piano and jazz show. Not the mm -hmm. uh, maybe the big show's great too. I'm sure it is. I didn't see it, but I it was a it was a huge proscenium opening. And with some really elegant, uh, you know, curtains or whatever. It was a 24-piece band, but it was a huge opening. And the reason I mention this to you is that, you know, she's just standing on the stage. And, and I'm telling you, she filled, the, she filled the stage. It was, you know, she was extraordinary. And she tells stories and she plays music. and all that. So I would say uh, Gaga. Yeah. Awesome. Brian Becker, thank you so much for your time today. Crushed it. Chairman, CEO, Bass Entertainment and Bass Hologram. Thank you for being here, Midlife Mail Podcast. Appreciate your time, buddy. Am I, am I, all right, outside the uh, midlife part of the Not anymore. Of the range. Not, hey, not, not anymore. 62 we're, is a new 52. We're, is that we're, living, we're living longer and better than we ever had before. Good okay. to hear. The Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman was presented by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit innsgroup.net. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.